turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this post-debate day edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for everyone who uh, called in to offer their reviews in real time right after the debate ended on last evening's show. A lot of good conversations, good comments. Uh, as we um, have a little bit of distance from what happened last night, uh, the performances of the two candidates, perhaps a, uh, a little bit more measured perspective. One of the, uh, uh, the exchanges between the two, replete with interruptions, as was most of the 90 minutes, of course, was on the uh, issue of law and order uh, with Chris Wallace demanding that President Trump condemn white supremacy again and uh, Donald Trump demanding that Joe Biden condemn Antifa. And it was a moment where uh, both men stumbled to varying degrees, I would say. Uh, This was these were this was sort of the exchange where uh, both men stumbled and presented uh, opportunities for the D.C. press corps to pour over their responses today and the the, the campaigns to trade barbs as they are already. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I would say say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right wing. So what are you 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 saying? I'm I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. Then do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a name. White supremacists and right supremacists. White supremacists and right Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This is, this is a left wing. This is a left wing white supremacist. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not kidding. militia. That's what All his right. an idea. FBI his okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, then, you know what? No, no, no we're, done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next. We're moving on to the next. That's not an idea. Everybody Antifa in your administration tells you the truth is a, has a bad idea. Can I tell you what? You have no idea. Antifa, Antifa is a dangerous radical group. All right, gentlemen, group. we're now moving on to the Trump and, and Biden records. They'll overthrow you. When a president... As I said last night, Antifa's idea, an idea, not an organization. Don't tell that to journalist Andy No, who was almost beaten to death by Antifa in Portland. Don't tell that to Project Veritas, which did undercover reporting on Antifa meetings in Portland. But more to the point, and this goes to a nagging issue I have with President Trump's performance, is the lack of preparation. Uh, because uh, the comment that Joe Biden was referring to is, um, uh, was made uh, I- I- just in the last week. 
or so, uh, middle of the month. And um, Joe Biden, of course, if you knew what Christopher Ray had said, you would know that Joe Biden is mischaracterizing it. What he said during testimony on the Hill is, quote, it's not a group or an organization. It's a movement or an ideology. And so he said that uh, the FBI has undertaken, quote, any number of properly predicated investigations into what we would describe as violent anarchist extremists. It's not a group or an organization. It's a movement or an ideology. That's not to suggest that it's just an idea. It does. These people don't actually exist. It's driven by an ideology. It is a movement rather than an organization. One may say it's a sort of a sociological semantic point. But nonetheless, he's not saying what Joe Biden is implicating, he said. And Trump could have responded on point on that. Of course, they just then started talking over each other, but it's lost. But that is a preposterous statement. And President Trump is also right on the merits with respect to uh, Antifa and the violence or urban centers being driven by uh, Marxists who believe that violence is a tool for the revolution. Uh, for more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, thefederalist.com. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, happy to have you weigh in on the Antifa piece, but I want to start with the other side of it. Trump uh, on the whole, you know, prompting, berating, say it, say it, say you're opposed to white supremacists. And it seemed to me and the whole like Proud Boys, what do you want to say? Who do you want to call them? Uh, when he said stand down and stand by, he was basically trying to repeat what Chris Wallace had said, stand back and stand down. And he said by rather than down. But it, it's just an opportunity for President Trump to say, listen to me. You know, I have always condemned white supremacist violence. You just heard me say I'm interested in peace. And anybody who's promoting racism isn't interested in peace. So I'm not interested in them. So stop with these insulting questions and let's get to the substance of the matter, which is violence on the streets of America from big cities to smaller suburban communities these days. And what should be done about it? Here's what I want to do about it. And here's what he doesn't want to do about it. Yeah, look, I I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I, I felt right at home uh, watching last night's debate. It was <laughs> literally every Thanksgiving dinner I've ever had with my Irish Catholic family in Philadelphia. Um, it was, you know, just barbs and jabs. and, and How many you know, times attacks. are you called a clown at uh, that dinner oh, table? Oh, my goodness. The moment <laughs> I walk in the door. Um, but but, but as to that particular exchange, look, you're absolutely right. And the bottom line is it's never going to be enough. Right. Donald Trump could do a could do a news block right now, stand in, in, in the Rose Garden and say, you know, I am against white supremacy. And somehow, you know, that that statement wouldn't go far enough. It wouldn't be strong enough. But what about your actions? What about and, and Trump knows this in a way that I think traditionally Republicans have not. I think traditionally when Republicans are, are, are sort of threatened with accusations of, you know, racism or, or, you know, classism or, or being elites or something. Guys like Mitt Romney get very flustered by that. Trump doesn't. I mean, Trump knows he's not a racist. He knows that, that most Americans don't think he is. And so, no, he's not going to, you know, he's not going to genuflect to these sort of woke ideas. Uh, and uh, what of the, uh, I would call it a Biden gaffe on Antifa, something that I think the Trump campaign could properly exploit with that statement Joe Biden made juxtaposed against all the video footage we have of violence on the streets of America. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the idea that all of these people, 
you know, in Portland with shields and Molotov cocktails and cans of soup just happen to be bumping into each other for a hundred nights in a row. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all that's going on. Right? Somebody's sending an email. I mean, somebody's sending a text message being uh-huh. like, Hey, meet, meet me here. Right. That's an organization. I mean, and it's happening all over the country. So I actually, I mean, part of my problem with that actually lies with Christopher Ray because I think he did a pretty awful job um, explaining what Antifa is and and how it operates. I think we've heard much stronger and and more accurate statements from from people like Attorney General Barr on this. No, I agree with that. But, I mean, just just, again, it seems to me the context of of knowing what Christopher Ray said and what I think he was – intimating he didn't speak with moral clarity like Barr on the topic which would have been nice it doesn't seem like we can get that from the fbi generally speaking but but it's he clearly wasn't suggesting it's just there's just this uh, figment of people's imagination it's an idea that's being discussed it doesn't actually take human form christopher ray wasn't saying what joe biden was suggesting he said no i mean that that's that's absolutely right but the, the reason that the, the reason that i do uh as i say you know lay some of that blame on ray's feet is i i think he did leave the door open um, for Biden to, to try to do that, and, and Biden exploited it. So yeah. it's the, the whole thing, you know, you brought up Andy No, and I mean, Andy's done such phenomenal work on this, uh, you know, as have um, others over the years. I mean, Antifa's not even new. I, I, mean, I mean, you can go back to the late 90s and, and the World Trade Organization um, protests in Seattle, and, I, you know, this is old stuff, and it is very, very strange uh the way that our corporate media just runs cover for these people. It's, it's kind of bizarre. What was your sort of top line takeaway on, on the debate? Because there's a real range of opinion, including among self-identified Trump supporters, uh, about uh, how he did and whether or not he advanced his electoral interests last night. Well, I watched it with a buddy of mine, and with about 10 minutes left, we made a bet. We bet $5. I said, I bet you, I was watching CNN. I said, I bet you the majority of the people on CNN will say this was a tie. And he took the bet because he assumed that they would all say, oh, you know, Biden, Biden won. And I won the bet, right? So, and, and, and so that is sort of my takeaway. I think nobody can really be declared the winner of this. And I think that helps both candidates in different ways. I think for Joe Biden, um, you know, he didn't collapse. Right. I mean, he stood there for 90 minutes. And so I think that, you know, that's what he needed to do. And I think for Trump, there was sort of this expectation that incumbent presidents don't do very well in their first debates, going back to um, Obama versus Romney and and Bush versus Kerry. And so I think a tie for Trump in debate number one is not a terrible result. He is David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, Federalist Federalist.com. David, thanks for joining us. Good, Good luck with those future family dinners. I hope you're treated better. Thank you very much. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, continuing the discussion of the debate last night with uh, sort of bridging between our conversation with David Marcus and uh, getting to uh, our conversation upcoming with uh, Martin Kaldorf, medical professor from Harvard Law. 
talked about uh, some openings that each candidate left the other with David Marcus on, frankly, the issue of race and street violence. I want to talk about some uh, good examples of Trump's performance. But before we even get to that, interesting to get the angle that uh, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, and by extension the Trump campaign is taking in terms of their post-debate messaging, what they want people to take away what they want uh, ambassadors for the campaign to distribute as terms of the how you should conceive of this and message it. And uh, a lot of the talking points really focus on dominance. Trump was dominant. Trump was strong. Joe Biden was weak. Joe Biden dodged questions. Joe Biden doesn't have answers. Uh, and there were some moments of that, of course, um, perhaps a well, there's I think this there's two, two moments. One was his unwillingness to or inability to come up with any law enforcement organization that is supporting his candidacy in that moment when they were talking about street violence and uh, him just sort of looking down at the podium and dithering, hoping that there was some name or organization name on one of his cards that he could use to push back. But there wasn't uh, the other was his uh, dodge on. The pack the court question uh, as part of the discussion about Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. And uh, the justice, and I have nothing, I'm not opposed to the justice. She seems like a very fine person. No, how strongly you, you feel. Let, vote now. Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question. Why because, would you answer that because question? Because the you question is, the question is, the question is, radical left. Will you shut up, man? the will you shut up. So will you shut up is what's remembered. But his unwillingness to answer the question about packing the court is really key. I'm not going to answer that because then that'll be the story. Well, why would it be the story if. You just say, well, no, I'm not going to support packing the court because why would we need to pack the court? That would be a political tantrum in response to a president legitimately nominating someone to fill a vacancy and the Senate taking up the issue, just as we would have had we had charge of the Senate in 2016, President Obama's last year with his nomination of Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia. Uh, Joe Biden you know, for all of President Trump's imprecision with language, Joe Biden, the fabulist, uh, wants to be all things to all people all the time. This is nothing new. This is who he is, which is why in this late stage of his political life, as well as life generally, as someone who's been a chameleon for more than four decades, why stop being a chameleon now? This is who he has to be to be the nominee. This is who he has to be to keep his Democrat Socialist Party together. So this is who he's going to be. And uh, before we get to, to Kaldorf, too, the the criticism of President Trump on masks, I, I, I this co- the covid response from Trump. Uh, we'll talk about a bit later in the show, too, is unnerving. He's he's trying to middle it rather than just saying what we know to be true, even though you're going to get excoriated by the press because you're going to get excoriated by the press anyway. We'll talk to Martin Kaldorf about his colleague, uh, one of the world's leading epidemiologists, Sunetra Gupta at Oxford, and what she said in a recent interview by John Tierney, who we spoke with on the show, about mass policy and uh, schooling and so forth, but but specifically just just this attitude. She um, says, she says in this interview, teachers and students who are vulnerable should have the option to go online, but for the rest of us, the virus is no bigger than other risks we take in daily life. 
It's not rational and certainly not communitarian to avoid being infected with a pathogen that carries such a low risk to you when there's a high benefit to the community to helping you create herd immunity. She's an opponent to this oppressive mask culture. In fact, tyrannies, the title of Tyranny's piece, which features this interview of Professor Gupta, is The Moral Case for Reopening Schools Dash Without Masks. You, you take a position. Don't be like, I, you know, I, the science is dubious. I don't only believe it, but I have no problem with it, blah, blah, blah. This, this middling uh, stance that Trump takes. Because at the one time he's trying to, you know, sort of satisfy the uh, ascientific, self-righteous, virtue-signaling mob, as well as those who've done a 180 on his task force on the mask mandate from the spring to the present, and that would include CDC Director Redfield and Dr. Tony Fauci. Uh, and on the other hand, he knows what the truth is, doesn't he? It's the same thing with respect to this response to uh, fix the uh, virus and then we fix the economy that people like Joe Biden are touting. The response should be, you know, the, and, and, and also, too, ascribing the recession, the Trump recession, the job losses under Trump. This You supported the lockdown. You so support lockdowns that you still support lockdowns six months later after I'm out lauding Indiana and lauding Florida for sensibly and Texas to a large extent for sensibly reopening. I want schools reopen. I want. The economy reopened. This is what I said on Monday when I announced the 100 million plus Abbott lab rapid tests that should facilitate the reopening of schools and the economy. This is what we should be doing. And what you're saying is, no, the policies that led to the job losses that led to the need for, you know, six to nine trillion dollars worth of covid relief, depending on how you do your math. You want to continue that. You, you don't want an economy until we do something that we can't do, which is nothing happens until we eradicate COVID from the planet or from the country. Living for versus living with COVID in Dr. Joseph Ladapo's parlance, UCLA medical professor. Um, he should say. Exactly that. I know he it's almost like self-criticism because his policies led to these. But he knows that that's true. What he advocated and what states did and a, a lot of states would have done it anyway, but he was an advocate for it. We need to shut down. That's what you wanted. You didn't oppose that policy. You supported that policy. You're so supportive of it. You're still supportive of it in spite of the overwhelming evidence that we should be reopening. Take ownership of what happened. And make the point that, as he tried to make, that Joe Biden says, I'll shut this economy down if some scientist tells me to. Well, there are scientists that are saying that all the time because all they're looking at is the virus and they're not engaged in the real world of trade-offs. Trump needs to be the adult in the room talking about that real world of trade-offs, particularly as you're starting to see pressure around the country, including in deep blue states like my home state of Illinois, for schools to reopen because the consequences are starting to be visited upon these kids and these families. I just wish there would be more clarity of thought and position from Trump. Ownership of what you did, understand the consequences. Now we're cleaning up those consequences because that's what we thought was the best option at the time. 
Now we think this is the best option at the time, all facts considered. And this is the direction we should go. Joe Biden is still back trying to fight uh, the war from six months ago. We're beyond that now. It's time to live our lives again. This is Dan Pitt. There's no time left for you. No time left for you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Certainly uh, COVID and the management of the pandemic was a big topic at last night's debate. Uh, I'm not so sure there was much light generated as compared to heat. Uh, Here's uh, sort of the tenor of the discussion. First, Trump. Joe, you've had 308,000 military people dying because you couldn't provide them proper health care in the military. So don't tell me about this. I'm happy to talk about this. And if you were here, it wouldn't be 200. It would be 2 million people because you were very late on the draw. You (laughs) didn't want me to ban China, which was heavily infected. You didn't want me to ban All right. Gentlemen, which was heavily infected. You would have been much later, Joe. Mr. President. So uh, this was after Trump was accused of being responsible for all 200,000 Americans who died as... uh, from COVID or had COVID, including in other comorbidities as the animating cause of their death. Uh, Trump hearkening back to the VA scandal during the Obama and Biden administration, in case you had forgotten, and then Biden. Do you believe for a moment what he's telling you in light of all the lies he's told you about the whole issue relating to COVID? He still hasn't even acknowledged that he knew this was happening, knew how dangerous it was going to be back in February, and he didn't even tell you a lot of people died and a lot more are going to die unless he gets a lot smarter. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, it was mostly retrospective rather than prospective in terms of where do we go from here uh, is the uh, Abbott rapid test that was announced on Monday, a game changer. The distribution of vaccines, there was an argument uh, uh, where I guess Chris Wallace played the role of CDC Director Redfield and Trump played the role of Trump in arguing about uh, how fast any vaccine that is developed uh, and uh, found to be safe and effective can be disseminated across uh, the uh, whole of the country. It was uh, frustrating like so much of the debate was. For more on this topic and related matters, since his name was called out, by uh, Dr. Scott Atlas last week, and uh, now he's probably uh, a target of uh, those who don't like the Trump administration as well. We're pleased to be joined again by Martin Kaldorf, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Professor Kaldorf, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let's see if we can uh, fill in some of the gaps that were left by the two presidential candidates, starting with uh, this uh, argument that doesn't seem to actually be as much of an argument as the press is making it out with respect to a vaccine being developed and its distribution. There's agreement about sort of rank order priority of distribution, frontline health workers, vulnerable populations, and on down the line. There are logistical issues. There are logistical issues with everything. And it seemed to me there wasn't actually much of an argument. Redfield was saying it may take until the summer to you know, fully vaccinate everybody who wants to be vaccinated. And Trump was suggesting we're going to deploy the vaccines as soon as we get them and we have an infrastructure set up to start deploying them in rank order priority. There, I, there probably is less daylight between the two positions than is being reported. Yes, probably. Uh, I mean, everybody can't get it at the same time, so it will be a rollout. And uh, 
it makes sense that uh, nursing home staff and uh, healthcare providers are a top priority. And uh, the uh, projections that continue to be bandied about that we're you know perhaps weeks away, Pfizer CEO saying we're weeks away from knowing whether or not the vaccine they have in development will be effective. That's different than saying we're going to have one. Um, but do you still uh, are you uh, guardedly optimistic that that we are looking at potentially a safe and effective vaccine before year's end or still too soon to make such predictions? Uh, I don't dare to make a prediction. Yeah. OK. Um, wanted to get your reaction to, as I uh, just referenced, Dr. Scott Atlas uh, sort of under siege and openly disagreeing with CDC Director Redfield about this matter of cross reactive immunity and whether or not it's likely there's a larger percentage of the population that antibody testing would so indicate that may have developed immunity to COVID-19. He mentioned other epidemiologists, other medical infectious disease experts, including yourself and and Professor Ioannidis at Stanford and Professor Gupta at Oxford and others, as saying, you know, these are people saying the same things. This is not a a particularly controversial or ridiculous notion. But yet uh, Tony Fauci went on and did an interview where he criticized Scott Atlas for criticizing the CDC director or openly disagreeing with him. Is this just sort of uh, industry politics or is there something, is there a real disagreement here about the relevance of cross-reactive immunity? Well, Fauci criticized Atlas, but he didn't contradict Atlas uh, uh, of the key point, which is that if we look at uh, people with antibodies, the percent with antibodies, that's just a lower, lower bound on the number of people who are immune. There are more people who are immune than those who have antibodies uh, from, for example, they've been exposed to COVID um, and they have uh, T-cell immunity instead of antibodies. So we know that uh, there is more immunity in the population than the percent indicated by antibodies. And that's what Scott Atlas said, and uh, Fauci did not not contradict that statement. Uh, I want to build on that statement then and so what that statement implicates in terms of policymaking. Uh, we'll do that with Professor Martin Kulldorff, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, right after that. It's a shame the way you mess around with the men. It's a shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame the way you mess around with the men. I tried. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Martin Kolder, Professor of from Harvard Medical School. We were talking about the, the uh, cross-reactive immunity issue with respect to COVID-19. And uh, if there are a greater percentage of Americans who develop some immunity to COVID-19, thus meaning less Americans who face potential exposure to COVID-19, how does that impact the sort of policy making we should be considering? Uh, one of your colleagues, Professor uh, Kolder, Professor Gupta at Oxford, recently said in an interview, that the COVID isolation strategies are accompanied by a lot of virtue signaling and self-righteousness, but the costs are very high in the poor around the world as well as the young. I find it intolerable for teachers to ask youth to give up this important phase of their development, meaning in-person education, and to slow the development of herd immunity. If we really care about the common good and protecting the vulnerable, the rest of us should be willing to take a very small risk. How do you react to that perspective? Uh, Dr. Gupta, she is one of the preeminent infectious disease epidemiologists in the world, and I completely agree with uh, what she's saying about that. Uh, we should keep all the schools open for in-person teaching. There's no public health reasons not to do so. Uh, we are sacrificing the young children uh, right now because of the fear we have. And the right thing to do is to do a better job protecting the uh, the elderly and other high-risk groups, more testing uh, in nursing homes, 
making sure that uh, people in the 60s, so t t teachers in the 60s should not be teaching in person, so they should be able to teach at home, but uh, for the rest, the school should be open, and I think that's very important. There's a lot of collateral damage right now from the lockdowns that we should try to uh, end. Uh, on the K-12 through score, even uh, those who are pretty aggressively supportive of lockdowns like uh, like Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota have said, you know, there are not the outbreaks at the K through 12 school systems that are open that I anticipated. And that's something that we have to take notice of. So at least he's being honest on that score. Um, but I wonder on uh, the collegiate level, how you assess that reaction. We have uh, definitely outbreaks on college campuses around the country, but they're, uh, they're, they're attendant to very few hospitalizations and, and none, no, no discernible deaths that I've heard, at least from the last three weeks. And so I wonder if the re the idea of, uh, locking down, quarantining on college campuses when there's an outbreak is consistent with the approach uh, you think that Dr. Gupta is describing with respect to K-12? through Yeah, it's not. So uh, children can be infected and uh, college kids can be infected and they will be infected. But uh, for children, the risk uh, of mortality or death from COVID is much less than from the annual, annual flu. So the children are not at risk and young people have bigger risk from uh, car accidents. So... Uh, there's no reason why college kids cannot have in-person teaching, and I don't think there's any need to do any testing unless somebody gets seriously ill. And if a child or a college student is uh, have a cough or a runny nose, they can stay home. Uh, we don't need to test for that. And uh, so that you would just, uh, suggest the same protocol for you know, teachers over 60, professors over 60, sort of same sort of thing they can do, uh, a remote uh, instruction. They don't need to be in the classroom because they're more vulnerable. Yeah, so the students could be in the classroom and maybe a teaching assistant, but uh, if, if you have a professor that's about 60, yeah, it would be, make sense for them to teach remotely from home. That's uh, the right approach, to, to because they are at high risk, so they should be protected. And uh, uh, th so, so then thinking about this, uh, uh, what do we also know from Western nations? Because there's a, this uh, dismissive attitude towards Sweden even as Sweden now has a lower case fatality rate or lower death per capita than, than America. Um, there's this dismissal of Sweden. Sweden is still a catastrophe, according to many in this country, including Dr. Fauci, who dismissed Sweden in an exchange with Rand Paul uh, on, the, on Capitol Hill last week as, when Rand Paul tried to raise the issue of Sweden as uh, starting to look better and better with each passing day because they have a higher death per capita than some of their Nordic neighbors. How, how do we understand the light touch approach that was taken most notably by Sweden, but even to some extent sort of underreported with those same Nordic countries that Vauci is comparing them to when it comes to things like returning kids to school? Well, I think Sweden has done uh, did, did the right decision to keep the schools open throughout the pandemic during the spring. And uh, uh, all kids in daycare and schools ages 1 to 15 went to school throughout. And uh, during there was a report came out uh, in, in June or July after the school season was over, and there were zero deaths among the 1.8 million children uh, in this age group, and there were just a few uh, hospitalizations. And the teachers were no, had no higher risk uh, than the average of other professions. So that's very, that's, since that was the one country or one major Western European country that kept the schools open, that's the best evidence we have as to whether it is... Uh, uh, safe for the kids and safe for the teachers, and the, the evidence is very clear that it is safe for the for the for both uh, kids and teachers. And I think the main risk for teachers are not the children, but uh, other teachers that they can infect each other. So 
it makes sense to have uh, to minimize the contact between teachers, different teachers, while they can have normal operations with the children. If and when there is a vaccine developed, it's it's likely, is it not, that it will you know be uh, something well short of 100 percent effective for those people vaccinated, like the flu vaccine is. Yeah, that's very very plausible. Yes, we don't know uh, how uh, what the efficacy is going to be. And so, so we so, uh, given that possibility, then how do you react to people who say, "Well, first we have to uh, eradicate COVID, then we can reopen the economy. Or first we have to eradicate COVID, and then we can reopen the schools." Uh, we can't uh, eradicate uh, uh, COVID. That's impossible. That's never going to happen. And why is that? Uh, in the history of medicine, we have only eradicated two diseases. One is smallpox and one is rinderpest. Uh, both were eradicated with vaccines. But even uh, diseases like measles or uh, rubella or polio, we have not uh, been able to er- eradicate them. So that's not going to happen with COVID, for sure. And uh, I, I spoke with uh, Dr. Jonathan Allen, who's a former CEO of Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital, All Children's Hospital, on the show yesterday. And I just wonder if you share his frustration with this notion that you have to start from the premise that you just made, that you just offered, which is we're not going to eradicate it. And then you have to set sort of some thresholds, that uh, some metrics by which you make decisions uh, about uh, reopening, about living with COVID, uh, essentially. And there's a real resistance um, in certain quarters among certain people, not just politicians, but including politicians, to uh, set those sort of measurements that bring people along, that, that are sensible, that are science-informed, that are uh, risk assessment that are thoughtful about the risk assessment, but there's just an unwillingness to do any of that. It's just uh, sort of flying by the seat of your pants and whether or not people feel safe. It, it seems like it's a little bit of uh, of cart before the horse. Yeah, I think Florida is taking the right approach, which is to open um, the society for uh, uh, open all the schools for in-person teaching and uh, universities and opening restaurants and so for uh, the majority of the population. At the same time, increasing the efforts to protect the elderly. And asking older people, uh, older people should not go out and uh, mingle uh, in restaurants because they are at high risk. And once we have reached uh, herd immunity, whenever that happens, either through a vaccine or natural infection or most likely maybe a combining of the two, then uh, uh, older people can also start living normally. He is Professor Martin Koldorf, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Professor, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. The more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, building off our conversation with uh, Martin Kaldorf, professor of medicine at Harvard, Harvard Medical School. Uh, a moment of some levity, uh, even on the topic of COVID. At last night's debate, uh, President Trump being criticized by the two gentlemen he was debating, both Biden and Chris Wallace, for uh, the recklessness of his rallies in the COVID era. He responded thusly. We've had no negative effect. And we've well, had 35, 40,000 right, people want to these rallies. Just, he's been totally irresponsible the way in which he has handled the, the social distancing and people wearing masks, basically encouraged them not to. All right. And he's a fool on this. If you could yeah. get the crowds, you would have done the same thing. But you can't. Nobody can. Gentlemen. <laughs> You can't do it. There's three people. He goes on. You know, there's three people at your events, and they're standing in little circles, and you're 200 feet away with the biggest mask on I've ever seen. That was sort of funny. Uh, frankly, the um, uh, nannyism of the left when it comes to masks and uh, dubious science uh, is worthy of ridicule. So I'm, I'm glad Trump did. By the way, also, the dire predictions 
and the false reporting about uh, COVID spread because of these rallies uh, has been noticed. And for example, the first rally Trump had in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was actually uh, some academics who studied the the possibility of more cases as a result of that congregation in Tulsa. And uh, there was a report that was done looking at this with enough time lapsed between the event and the study for uh, cases, infections to present themselves, and found uh, no discernible impact. So Trump's not wrong when he says that. I mean, it continues to fly in formation with what we're learning about COVID, as we discussed with Ron Kaldorf, Jonathan Ellen, so many other medical professionals, infectious disease experts, epidemiologists, who otherwise the uh, D.C. press corps doesn't want to hear from because the left's posture is to keep people afraid and inside. But there are moments of uh, unintentional admission. Uh, This uh, tweeted out from reopened Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Bucks County, Pennsylvania is just north of Philadelphia. Governor Tom Wolf, their Democrat, and the state rep, maybe Wendy Ullman, doing a briefing. And uh, hot mic. Got to always watch out for those hot mics, especially when you're going to have an excited utterance admitting that uh, this is so much performance art. So, Wendy, I'm going to take, I'm going to take my mask off when I speak. I will as well. I'm, just, I'm waiting so that we can do a little political theater. Okay. <laughs> so that it's on camera. The governor, Tom Wolf, who's one of the more aggressive lockdown and bust artists in the country, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to take my mask off when I speak, and the state rep saying, uh, well, just, just uh, uh, wait uh, until... Uh, because uh, we want to do a little political theater here, so wait until we get it on camera. Right. PAs, performance prevaricators, political theater here, because we have to instruct the hoi polloi so that they protect themselves. They follow suit. Mainly, we have to instruct the hoi polloi so they're obedient. Isn't that right? Representative Ullman and Governor Wolf, thank you for your unintentional candor. It's helpful. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. One of the things that uh, Trump didn't do that he could have last night, I think, more effectively, is frame the choice before Americans on November 3rd. What exactly is at stake? You know, the elections are about the future. We were just talking about that with John Nolte from Breitbart. Uh, That's true with respect to plans. It's also true with respect to a choice that transcends any individual issue. What is at stake with respect to America's future in the choice that people will make on November 3rd? Well, somebody who's uh, done that, again, is Dinesh D'Souza, filmmaker, New York Times bestselling author. His uh, latest documentary, Trump Card, now exclusively available on the Salem Now platform, Salem Now platform, until October 6th. So uh, right up until uh, vice presidential debate eve. And uh, 
the question that Trump card seeks to answer is, will America succumb to identity socialism? That's what's at stake on November 3rd. For more on this, pleased to be joined again by Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. I think uh, there were opportunities for Trump to uh, make the point that uh, your film explores, such as when Chris Wallace asked him very much uh, along the uh, talking points of the left about why he initiated this executive order against racial sensitivity training uh, for federal employees. It's racial sensitivity training. That was really a moment for Trump to say uh, it's nothing of the sort. There's nothing sensitive about it. In fact, it's actually mean spirit. It's it's instruction and hate. And here's why I did it. He didn't lay it out uh, so people can understand just how pernicious identity politics is, uh, or at least understand a little bit more. Uh, But you do that in your film. Um, Yes, we do. I, I think with Trump, there's a real difference between a rally and a debate, because in a rally, you can kind of presume that the people there understand a lot of what you're referring to, and and you don't have to explain. You can just throw out zingers and people understand. They have the background knowledge to know what you're getting at. Um, In a debate, you're dealing with undecided voters, and you need to explain things. And I think Trump repeatedly didn't do that. A classic example is when he was talking to Biden about the money that Biden's son, Hunter Biden, got from Moscow. But what he should have said is, listen, um, Vice President Biden, whenever you go to a foreign country, you take a family member in tow. And then while you're having the official meetings, the family member is cutting deals with the foreign government, which result in tens of millions of dollars flowing into the Biden family coffers. That's happened in Ukraine, in China, in South America. It's involved your two brothers and your son. And that's how you've gone from zero to $100 million in in really just a few years. How, How did you make all that money? You know, and then Biden would be forced to explain. Whereas if you just throw out where where the where the money from the from Moscow come from, Biden can just say, oh well, that's been looked at, that's been discredited. So the thing about Trump is, I think he needs to lay the context for what he's saying and explain a little bit more clearly what the issues are and what the scandals are. I, I completely agree, and let me offer a friendly addendum to the to what you just said and get your reaction. You lay the predicate so you can close the issue and reframe the choice. So by explaining it, as you said, then you can say, see, America, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I ran against, the political ruling class that enriches themselves on your dime. And this is what we're still running against. So the choice in 2020 is very similar to the choice in 2016. We made a lot of progress against the swamp, drained some of it, but there's a lot more to drain. And so do we go back to installing one of the ruling class toadies of the last 50 years, Joe Biden and Biden, Inc.? Or do we continue on the path that we're on to return your government to you? The Hunter Biden uh, example provides the setup for the choice. Exactly. You know, when you're in a debate, um, it sometimes helps to hold back and listen, look for an opening and then throw a punch. Uh, Yesterday was kind of a mud fight and both the guys were throwing punches the whole time. Um, Now, Biden actually was the bigger name caller. He called Trump a clown, a racist, a liar. I mean, I don't I can't think of equivalent epithets that were hurled by Trump at Biden. Um, But what Trump would do is he would make, you know, he would twist up his face and vigorously shake his head and interrupt. And you don't actually need to do that. Uh, You just let the guy go on for a while, pick the weak point that he raises and then crush it on your own time. So I think in some sense, Trump was a little nervous at the beginning. I think he fell into his stride beforehand. I don't think that, you know, in some ways he's emotionally incapable of holding back. He's a certain type of a guy and he fights a certain type of a way and he's going to keep doing that. But I still think that this was a good night for him, but it was not his best night. Um, I, I guess, uh, Dinesh, uh, my uh, 
wistfulness to return to an era of Bill Buckley and John Kenneth Galbraith firing line style debates. I guess that will continue to be a, a dream whose grasp exceeds my reach. Uh, we're just not going to go back to that time, are we? Well, I, I don't think, you know, you might think that that's just because of the two people in the ring, but I don't think that's quite true. I think that when we think back to the Buckley, Galbraith, or even take the Nixon-Kennedy debates, uh, there was a shared assumption that those two candidates were not that far apart, that they agreed on goals but disagreed on means. They both agreed America should be strong. They both agreed America should be prosperous. They might disagree about how that prosperity might be shared, uh, but they, in a sense, they were going to the same destination, uh, even though one wanted to go by bus and the other wanted to go by train. I think what's different with our politics now is that we don't agree on goals. Uh, they want to go to Chicago and we want to go to Maine. Uh, and that means that it's much more difficult to find that common ground that we've always taken for granted exists in American politics. Yeah, that uh, sort of gets back to your film. And, and you um, you say about it the identity and, and about the individuals you're profiling, the identity socialists seek an overturning of norms, a redefinition of the American dream, redefinition of the American dream. Expound on that. How do they aim to redefine it? Well, if we think back you know, to 1980 in the Reagan campaign, Reagan had outlined sort of five themes that he believed about America. One was the idea of the individual. The second is the idea of the family. The third was the church. The fourth was the community, um, the kind of the moral community. And the fifth was the country. Now, let's think about it. The Democratic Party rejects all five. Uh, they reject the idea of individualism. They think this notion of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is a complete myth. They don't like the family because they think it's sort of this patriarchal institution of male dominance. Uh, they don't like the church, and they're happy to impose restrictions on churches that they don't impose on protests or other forms of gathering. Um, they don't like the country. They're, you know, when we, we say wistfully today things like the American flag, but honestly, is it really, do we really have an American flag? Isn't it true that it's our flag and not their flag, our national anthem and not their national anthem? They don't want to sing it anymore. We can't make them. So the bottom line of it is that these kind of taken-for-granted basic American institutions that you know, Reagan sought to affirm, I mean, Reagan would not have dreamed that Mondale or Carter would come out and say, well, I don't like those five things. I'm against them. You know, but that's where we are now. And, and Robert Reich, former Clinton Labor Secretary, wrote this week that it's actually Trump supporters who've already seceded from the nation. Well, we, we haven't seceded from the nation. We've just seceded from their America. We just don't want to live in it. I mean, they, they have this sort of depraved culture that they celebrate. Uh, they want to impose this conformity across media, including digital media. Uh, they ultimately, the things that we consider to be good, they consider to be bad. And therefore, and they've used the educational institutions to become instruments of propaganda. So now we have to ask the question, you know, are we safe sending our kids to their schools? to be indoctrinated in their values, which actually undermine our values? Do we want to be subsidizing that? These are not really questions we thought about. I mean, I sent my daughter to Dartmouth because I went there. Uh, and I thought to myself, wow, there's a great education to be had over there. But once the idea of honest debate is eliminated, uh, all those things go out the window. And uh, uh, thinking about COVID-19, uh, since that was, a, that was, I think, perhaps a maybe the most incoherent episode of the entire debate going in both directions. And I think that the president Trump and the Republicans need to do a better job of undermining the, uh, uh, the, the bromides that are issued by the likes of Joe Biden about uh, fix the fix COVID. Then we fix the economy. All 200,000 dead Americans are, uh, are Trump's responsibility, so on and so forth. I would have done things differently, just meaning better somehow, some way without any explication of exactly what that would have looked like. 
and uh, and the fact that in present day, in real time, Trump is promoting reopenings and uh, in-person instruction, while Joe Biden is still beholden to the lockdown left. This seems to me an issue that maybe uh, conservatives are underestimating in terms of its electoral power. I agree on its importance, and it, it, you know, it's one of those issues that touches everybody in quite a direct way. Now, I don't. I think the Democrats think it cuts only one way, in the sense that people feel like, "Wow, Trump is responsible for not doing enough." But I also think that there is a powerful sense pushed on the other side, which is that, "Listen, there's only so long you can be locked down without it having very destructive effects on people's lives, on their social lives, on their on their professional lives." And, you know, a powerful desire to prudently, but nevertheless vigorously open up the economy. Um, I, I do think that Trump needs to use the Socratic style more. Things like, okay, Mr. Biden, you claim that you were well aware very early on that this was a serious threat. Can you point to any public statements that you made then uh, calling for actions that differed from what I was doing? Yes. Uh, did you call for a mask requirement? We didn't have enough masks. Did you call for national testing? We didn't have enough tests. What did you say then? as opposed to now. It's very easy in that with hindsight to say, you should have done this, should have done that. But what did you say at the time uh, that alerted the American people to this threat and proposed remedies that were superior to the ones I was actually implementing? He is Dinesh D'Souza, critically acclaimed filmmaker, New York Times bestselling author. His latest documentary, Trump Card, now available exclusively on the Salem Now platform. And it's only available there uh, until October 6th. So check it out post haste. Dinesh D'Souza, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Joe Biden is either confused on the matter of ballot integrity or just willfully blind to it. I, I don't know which. But uh, President Trump... Uh, Responding again to an inquiry from Chris Wallace that started from the left's position about ballot integrity and legitimate concerns about a fair election. Urging my people, I hope it's going to be a fair election. If it's a fair You're election, I am a hundred percent on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. Right. And uh, what exactly is wrong with that position? Joe Biden's response was effectively. Uh, people mail in their ballots just like President Trump is going to mail his ballot to Florida. I'm sorry, that's not the issue. The issue is not absentee ballot voting, customary absentee ballot voting. The issue, as President Trump actually did point out, is not unsolicited ballot applications and uh, the ballot harvesting that we're seeing going on associated with that, the additional slack it puts in the system and perhaps in some uh, jurisdictions more so than others. We've seen the Project Veritas undercover video about what may be happening in Minneapolis that now the Minneapolis Police Department said they're investigating. We mentioned the story of Biden's political director in Texas uh, being involved in allegations of illegal ballot harvesting in Harris County in Texas. So there, these are real issues in addition to what we know about uh, the quality of record maintenance and even election administration in certain jurisdictions in certain states. And we've seen it play out in in real time in Patterson, New Jersey and New York State and Clark County, Nevada. So this is not, you know, just an idea, you know, like Antifa is just an idea. Uh, Ballot integrity is, is not just an idea either. It's a real legitimate substantive concern. For more on this and other matters, we're pleased to be joined again by Quinn Hillier, 
commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Quinn, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Glad to be on, y'all. And uh, you uh, wrote about this per a report uh, by Reuters that really essentially insinuated racist motives among respected former FEC commissioners and DOJ attorneys like our friend Hans von Spakovsky at the Heritage Foundation. The uh, Reuters outlet uh, writing, let me just quote here, uh, that uh, Republican Party uh, affiliated lawyers like those I mentioned uh, have sought purges of voter rolls that could disproportionately affect minority voters who tend to vote for the Democratic Party, according to voting rights activists and election officials who have opposed these efforts. Purges of voter rolls of people who are illegally on the voter rolls, regardless of their race. And but of, of course, it's being forced through the prism of race. That Reuters piece is nuts. The left wing and media line that uh, voter fraud is almost non-existent. That's not just nuts, it's a lie. Uh, I could cite chapter and verse, uh, but what they what they particularly did in the Reuters piece is tried to make it, as you say, sound like some sort of nefarious racist plot to, to want to have clean elections. And the people they're accusing that are Christopher Coates, who won, who started out as a big civil rights liberal and had a whole career uh, enforcing uh, civil rights laws. You had J. Christian Adams, who there are black members of the uh, uh, what is it, the Georgetown County, I think it is, uh, South Carolina uh, school board that are there only because of the work that Christian Adams did. Uh, going against vote fraud that is denying black people uh, their proper representation. Uh, I could go on and on. The fact is that these people are not racist. They are. They, they have fought racism their whole careers. Uh, well, and, and again, and, 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 and sorry to interrupt, but, 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 but the story out, even the New York Times uh, over the last uh, couple of days, uh, is it white supremacists in charge of the New York state elections, uh, New York City elections? Because if not, then how do you explain people getting absentee ballots with the wrong names and addresses on them? I mean, th- th- these are actual things that are happening. Uh, these are actual things that are happening. And, you know, but back when uh, when absentee balloting, which is actually perfectly legit, as you have described, uh, when absentee balloting tended to be more the province of Republicans and Democrats, the New York Times, this is about 10 years ago, uh, was saying we we should really crack down on absentee balloting uh, because all sorts of mail-in balloting, they said, uh, were more susceptible to fraud. Now, that was the New York Times 10 years ago, but now that the left has, has started all this vote harvesting stuff, which is fraud, now they say, oh, there's no fraud at all. It's nonsense. It's hypocritical. Uh, it's dishonest. You know, one, one other thing about this, I just wonder if you think that there's a possibility the left gets hoist by their own petard on this issue. And the reason I say that is because of just the spoil rate on mail-in ba- voting, particularly first-time mail-in uh, ballots, as compared to voting in person. So they're driving everybody to send their ballots in by mail. And, yeah, maybe there's illegal ballot harvesting programs going on like those I I reference. But at the end of the day, you're going to have a a much greater spoilage rate of those ballots for failure to fill them out properly and so forth than you will likely in-person balloting. And that could end up being detrimental to Biden's chances. 
Well, it could be, and that's that's if you have honest people running uh, the mail-in ballot counting thing, and 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 therefore throwing out the ballots that are spoiled or are bad. Uh, if you have honest poll commissioners or whatever you call them, uh, then yes, the spoilage rate can be terrible. Again, it was what two hundred twenty-three thousand spoiled ballots, mail-in ballots in Las Vegas in this spring's primaries, uh, the ongoing thing in New York, as you mentioned, uh, widespread screw-ups where the printing company uh, printed the ballot, the, the internal ballot envelope, which is the official thing that goes in, had different names on it than the name of the people that the ballots were mailed to. So those are 500,000 applications came in for mail-in ballots, uh, in New York, and I believe it was Brooklyn, they don't know how widespread, uh, how many of those $500,000 $500, applications uh, were sent illegal or improper ballots like that, uh, badly printed ballots, put it that way. Uh, but the New York Times itself said it was, quote, widespread. And, you know, it could be 100, 150,000. The latest trick of the left is is even in states where state law specifically says all mail-in ballots must arrive by uh, close of polls on election day. They, they have found friendly judges to go and say, I don't care what state law is, that's not fair, according to whatever fair is in their mind. And so blow off state law, we're going to say that that those ballots can come in a week or even two weeks late, uh, some, usually saying at least they have to be postmarked by Election Day. One, I can't remember if it was Pennsylvania or North Carolina, but one of them, the judge said, they don't even have to be postmarked by Election Day. So you could have people go and, and, and stuff the mail-in ballot boxes, as it were, two days after the election and have it counted. That's... It's unbelievable. It's so flagrantly dishonest. He is Quinn Hill, your commentary writer for Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Thanks for joining us again, Quinn. Thank you, Dan. the guy, why you so fly? He said, funky, cold, The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, one of the interesting moments uh, in last night's debate of many interesting moments. Well, actually, I don't think actually that many interesting moments, but um, uh, because of the, what was the phrase that... Uh, Conrad Black used incoherent cacophony, you know, uh, was uh, Joe Biden channeling uh, Louis XIV. He said, we do not wipe any. And one of the big debates we had with 23 of my colleagues trying to win the nomination that I won, were saying that Biden wanted to allow people to have private insurance still. They can. They do. They will under my proposal. It's not what you said. But and it's not what your party is, has said. That is simply Your party doesn't say it. Your party wants simple. to go socialist Medicine My party is and me. Socialist right healthcare. now, I am and the Democratic Party. And they're going to dominate party. you, Joe. You know that. I am the Democratic Party right now. L'état c'est moi, uh, says Joe Biden, taking ownership of the Democrat Socialist Party. Well, at least we know who's in charge, or at least is pretending to be 
for more on the uh, debate and um, that invocation by Joe Biden, we'll start there. John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at ricochet.com, contributor to AZ Central. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, so what about uh, the um, uh, absolute political power of uh, Joe Biden in the uh, vein of Louis Fourteenth? Yeah, maybe uh, Dr. Jill Biden is telling him before uh, he went out there that, oh, no, everyone loves you. You're in charge of this party. But he is, you know, the definition of a placeholder candidate. And for anybody to think that he's going to be there shouting out decisions and uh, running around leading his party is fooling themselves. You know, uh, I see a guy in the White House who's going to be calling a lid at 9 a.m. every morning and just letting his staff run things for him and letting Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and AOC run things for him on Capitol Hill. So, Were you uh, uh, surprised by uh, Joe Biden's performance positively? Did you expect uh, less from him than we got in terms of his energy level, his coherence? No. Uh, one of the problems for Trump is he lowered expectations so much, but um, I was expecting pretty much what I saw there, kind of a slow off his game, you know, but, you know, a steady guy. That's basically how he performed in uh, the Democratic debates. Uh, it's basically how he performed in his speech before a uh, Democratic National Zoom convention. Um, so it's kind of what I expected, uh, but it, it wasn't terribly enlightening or anything like that. He made a few, you know, verbal stumbles and so forth, but no major failures. Part of the reason he didn't have any major failures is Trump was butting in so much. You didn't get one of those classic Biden moments where he starts on one sentence. It sounds like um, he's starting on one sentence and finishing with a different sentence. So when he gets rambling, that's where he makes his biggest gas, and he didn't really have a chance to ramble last night. The Wall Street Journal editorial board opining today, no one expected a Lincoln-Douglas debate, but it, did it have to be a world wrestling entertainment bout? saying that uh, professional wrestlers are more presidential than either Trump or Biden, at least they were, at least uh, as uh, per their behavior last night. Is uh, too much made of a sort of presidential demeanor, or uh, I guess if you get far enough away from what people conceive of a presidential demeanor as happened last night, then it actually is a thing? Yeah, I, I think people are used to Trump by this point. Uh, those were the critiques in 2016, this poll would immediately say that Hillary, you know, just wiped the floor with Trump. Then a few days after that, uh, Trump's poll numbers would go. So I think people are fine with the verbal sparring. You know, I would love to see some kind of a very eloquent date. I had read uh, the Federalist Papers recently, and I was like, wow, these guys, these guys were very elegant and smart and had these lofty ideas. But I don't think America's looking for that right now. I think they want someone to kind of uh, – punch back against uh, and kind of punch through the falsity of a lot of this uh, decentralized society, which has got us into so much debt and problems. Well, what uh, is something that you wish you would have seen, a real takeaway from Trump that you wish he would have provided that he didn't provide last night? Um, well, I would have loved to see a verbal knockout punch. And, uh, it was just so much crosstalk. It was hard to get anything like that. Um, I think he can do a better defending his record, you know, his thing is, you know, he talked about you know, he's damaged our international standing and just pressing like various peace deals that uh, he's managed in the Middle East would be great. Kosovo as well. And these kind of silly things like, uh, by insisting that we go back to the Paris Accord 
uh, America has dropped measures more than anyone else in the Paris Accord, and we're not even a signatory to it anymore. So um, just these kind of artificial we're going to do all the agreements, um, I think is just kind of foolish when you can point to here are the actual numbers, and uh, we've actually improved our standing in the world. Uh, when we come back with John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at Ricochet, ricochet.com, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that in the context of what the RNC spin is coming out of last night's debate. We'll be right back with more. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at Ricochet.com, contributor to AZ Central, and uh, talking about uh, the debate last night, doing post-mortem. Of course, uh, the RNC, as I mentioned earlier in the program, putting out uh, talking points to their ambassadors today, as campaigns and political parties are wont to do. And it's interesting, uh, John, the emphasis is really on Trump uh, being dominant, Trump being strong, Biden being weak, Biden not answering questions. Um, it's interesting that uh, the RNC wants that to be the takeaway, the dichotomy that uh, is put forward into the public sphere, rather than saying, you know, Trump with a record of accomplishment to Trump being reasonable while Joe Biden was uh, actually doing really all the name calling. Shut up, Mr. Or, you know, why don't you shut up and you're a clown and this and that the uh, dominance versus weakness piece of it. Yeah, uh, that's really been a Trump signature for a long time. I think he it would be very helpful for him to, like at the Republican National Convention, um, he kind of made his image a lot more appropriate to suburban moms, um, people that he's having a really tough time getting to vote for him. So this whole strength versus weakness thing um, has not been working out as well for him, um, and it's kind of odd to focus on that. Um, part of his debate, you know, he's being criticized over his demeanor and things. But this is how he debates. He's not uh, – he doesn't think he's participating in something at Oxford University. You know, He comes from WWF. He's you know, a brawler. He's from Queens, and uh, he's just going to take a very aggressive stance because he always has. But, yeah, I think if he focused on the numbers of his record, that's something that people, especially cable news uh, pundits, can't really argue against when he just goes over the numbers. And I think that would be more effective. Speaking of aggressive, a lot of criticism of Chris Wallace for his performance as the moderator. Uh, of course, everything is counted and compared. Uh, moderator interrupting President Trump 75 times, Biden only 15 times. Um, what what did you make of Chris Wallace? But not just in terms of his, I would say, petulance from time to time with the crosstalk, but also the quality of his questions. Yeah, I, I think at the beginning it started out, I thought uh, he was trying to provide balance. But by the end, he's like sharing laughs with Biden. Um, I, I think the New York Times headline said it all, where their headline from the debate was Chris Wallace tries to rein in an unruly Trump. Well, that is not uh, the goal of a moderator to choose one candidate and rein that candidate in. And, um, you know, so he lost control, you know, after – Listing the first question, Chris Wallace did. 
And by the end, he was really quick to when Trump had a fair, honest attack on the Biden record. Chris Wallace would be quick to interrupt. Chris Wallace would be very quick to uh, jump in and ask gotcha questions of Trump and not doing that for Sanders either. Um, Another thing is just this kind of misrepresentation of things uh, with Trump getting rid of critical race theory in government contracting. Um, He just cast that as sensitivity training, which is not what it is. It's basically white, you know, white people are evil. You need to denounce yourself and, uh, you have all these unconscious biases, and uh, it's it's kind of very toxic, ugly stuff. And it seemed like again and again, especially the more as the debate went on, uh, it was instead of Trump versus Biden, it was Trump versus Biden and Wallace. Uh, and uh, on the matter of uh, law and order, which has become central to Trump's campaign messaging, uh, did he, you know, in addition to the line that everybody's discussing, which is uh, Antifa is just an idea, not a, not a real thing, which is sort of a mischaracterization with what right. with, of what Christopher Ray said. But but that that notwithstanding, did Trump accomplish enough in, in that space, including and this is underappreciated, including going after Joe Biden for the 1994 crime bill, really trying to make inroads into the black community there with that message that I think uh, uh, escaped the notice of most of the press corps, but perhaps not a lot of. Perhaps it did not escape the notice of many black voters. Yeah, I, I think that is something, you know, they talk about dog whistles every time uh, Trump says something. Um, that was something that is really going to appeal, I think, to that segment of voters uh, that Joe Biden just kind of like floats along with the wind and doesn't have uh, any, you know, he hardly has a spine of steel and he will just go with whatever his party kind of wherever they drift. So I think uh, Trump has to do a lot more just stressing his record in the next couple of debates. I think it's interesting because uh, the Democrat side, uh, you have them saying, oh, wow, Trump made a fool of himself. This is horrible. Biden you know, mopped the floor with him. But we shouldn't have any more debates. Um, if they actually thought that Biden did so well, they should you know, welcome 10 more debates, and they aren't doing that. So um, I just think uh, – Trump needs to keep on keeping on with this and focusing on the record as much as possible. There's a, a bridge from this debate to the next one, and that's the vice presidential debate next week. And because of the outsized importance of the vice presidential selection for Joe Biden, uh, perhaps this debate, which will again present a contrast in styles, uh, will uh, help to uh, address some of what you're saying about uh, tonight's debate with the president and provide a bit of a springboard into that next debate between the president and Joe Biden. Yeah, I think that would be good. And Kamala is just not very good at these debates. Uh, she had one good Democratic debate, and uh, after that, Tulsi Gabbard kind of took her to the woodshed, uh, challenging her on her record. And I think Pence, who is you know very studious, I think he should do a very good job with it. And she is not a likable person. Uh, she has a laugh like Hillary, and uh, her policy ideas are absolutely abysmal. You know, she was pushing the Green New Deal. She was Thing, how great busing is as a, a policy for integration. And uh, she's way out of step with the American people. With the rank and file of Democratic voters, she's against them because they tend to be a lot more moderate than uh, this kind of woke craziness that's taking over um, kind of the vanguard of the party. Um, so I think uh, Pence could do a lot of very good work at just slicing and dicing her professionally and uh, Biden as well. And uh, I mean, Pence is 
pretty unflappable. He, he may not be Mr. Charisma, right. but he's pretty unflappable. Right. And so it'll be fun to watch the press corps decry Trump's bombast and then turn around the next week and decry Pence's lack of charisma and excitement, which you know is going to happen. Oh, completely, completely. They'll do that. And uh, uh, we already uh, have the early draft, the news in. I'm sure they'll say uh, Harris will defeat Pence next time. And uh, just like they'll say Biden will win any debate he's in against Trump. Um, that's kind of baked into the cake already, but it will be funny. Um, you know, complain that Trump was too hot and Pence is too cold, but somehow Biden's <laughs> right. right in that He's right. Spot. He's the perfect. Yeah, his uh, he's Goldilocks. Uh, right. John Gabriel, editor in chief at Ricochet.com, contributor to AZ Central. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, this story comes to us from London. Uh, foul-mouthed birds split up after they launched a number of different expletives at visitors and staff just days after being donated to this uh, wildlife park in eastern England. Uh, the uh, chief executive of this wildlife park telling CNN uh, they just went ballistic. They were all swearing, these African gray parrots. We were a little concerned uh, about the children. <laughs> the chief executive, <laughs> chief executive said, I get called a fat blank every time I walk past. I feel like I'm playing the match game. Um, fat blank. Well, which is not because I felt like I was playing a $100,000 pyramid with just people throwing out words and you're trying to figure out the category of last night's debate. So I guess that's consistent. The African gray parrots, they're named Eric, Jade, Elsie, Tyson, and Billy, were given to the park from five different owners within the same week. Well, that's odd. So it can't be their home life. Let's try and crack this code of the uh, profane African gray parrots at this uh, wildlife park in eastern England. Five different owners, same week, shared a quarantining a quarantining facility together before being, ple- before being placed on display. But uh, staff immediately showed the birds shared a propensity to <clears throat> fly off the handle. They literally, within a very short period of time, started swearing, <laughs> started swearing at each other. Nicholas, I just I don't know why it tickles me. These African gray parents uh, going full like Andrew Dice Clay on one another. Uh, the, the director of the venue again said, uh, frack off, but not frack is the most common utterance from the birds towards one another, apparently towards passerbys too. It's a very easy one for them to learn. Sure. Of course. But he added the birds will utter anything you can think of real potty mouths. Most customers enjoyed the talent. Once the uh, parrots were displayed, the visitors were giving them as much, uh, back as <laughs> What they were giving to them. <laughs> F you. No F you, Billy, the African parrot. Uh, the exchanges. But uh, concern for the younger customers of the wildlife park forced the staff to <laughs> split up the birds and temporarily remove them from the park's public areas. Uh, they're uh, working to retrain the language of the African parrot so they can 
so they will be more family friendly and perhaps they can appear in public again. Hmm. Uh, the uh, park director, I uh, to take in a swearing parent, a swearing parrot isn't an unusual thing. It's something that happens probably three or four times a year. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, that's uh, sort of the challenge they have um, uh, at, with these parrots. Now, it, it turns out, I, I believe that these parrots watched last night's presidential debate and that was the trigger for the uh, profanity and the swearing at each other, as well as anybody who walked by. They're just sort of mimicking what American politics has become, I, I, I guess. That's possible, sure. What things have become in the West, particularly in this time of COVID. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Conrad Black, Lord Conrad Black, whose commentary I enjoy, very smart guy, historian, uh, he writes over at Am Greatness, there was uh, no clear winner in Tuesday's presidential debate, and the country was the loser. President Trump could have won decisively had just followed Napoleon's famous advice to not interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. The moderator, Fox News Channel's Chris Wallace, did an excellent professional job, largely without bias, and undoubtedly more fairly than those who will conduct the next two debates. But he didn't come hard enough. Uh, didn't come down hard enough on the uh, interruptions. If Trump had just allowed Wallace to follow up on his questions, if Biden, the former vice president, would have stumbled badly. Trump's irritating interruptions created an incoherent cacophony that enabled Biden to escape severe embarrassment. On balance, Trump almost certainly won, but a very few viewers would have had the perseverance to listen carefully enough to note that Trump defended his own record quite capably, and Biden was very shaky and imprecise both in his criticism of his opponent and explaining why he should be president. Now, I agree with um, a lot of that, uh, not the Chris Wallace part, um, and um, the uh, 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 but definitely the the interrupt your enemy part. But but I don't know. Maybe I'm just seeing things differently than uh, than Conrad Black is. Then, for example, the the two thirds of uh, respondents to that Telemundo poll that said Trump won the debate. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Nolte, editor at large at Breitbart, Breitbart.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Uh, so um, what, you've heard what Conrad Black is, uh, and probably read what Conrad Black saw. You sort of get an indication what. Um, what I saw, what did you see last night? I try to look at the debate not so much as point here, point there. What I try to look at is what everybody's going to take away from it as it soaks in over the coming days. And I go out of my way to avoid any analysis, especially on news, especially on TV from the media. And I think Trump won the debate. Um, I think he won. I think he won ugly. I don't think he had a choice, but I think he won the debate. I think he won because one. Biden has been hiding so much, and I was startled by how old he looked. I mean, that guy's old, and and yeah, he held it, yeah, he held it together, but that guy does not look like he's in very good shape. He looks like he's barely holding it together. I think the second thing that he did is he beat Biden at his own game. If anyone who remembers the 2012 vice presidential debate between Biden and Paul Ryan remembers that it was Biden who was interrupting 
and laughing and heckling and sighing. So Trump just went in there and he played Biden's game and he beat him at it. Trump also was able to bring up topics that Chris Wallace wasn't going to go near, like the Hunter Biden corruption, like Antifa, like like uh, Biden's unwillingness to to uh, denounce Antifa. Um, he got Biden, and this is something I'm writing a piece on now because I think this is for this is something that was lost. He got Biden to admit he's going to raise taxes on the middle class. Biden said straight out, "I'm going to eliminate the Trump tax cuts." Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a tax on the middle class. Mm-hmm. Biden said it twice. Uh, the other thing is that Trump is always going to be Trump. He's never going to change. And what he what his skill really is is to sort of expose his opponents as hypocrites, that they're not the classy norm lovers uh, that they want to be. So there's Biden telling the president of the United States to shut up. There's Biden telling the president of the United States he's a clown. Mm-hmm. Trump didn't engage in any name calling, didn't engage in any of that. And there, and Biden was, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't hear that at the debate, but telling the, oh, he didn't, oh, oh. But telling the president of the United States to shut up, that's, that's big. And telling the president a clown. So Biden looked really bad in that respect. And I think the only place where Trump fumbled, but it's where Biden also fumbled, is that neither man really talked about a vision for the future. And that's unfortunate. I mean, if you remember the 2016 debates, Trump was running on very serious platforms, very serious pillars of tax cuts and regulation cuts and and immigration and China and trade. And you didn't see a lot of that here because he's on defense. But I've been watching presidential debates since 1984, and I've never seen a president run for re-election and win the first debate. They always get the floor mopped with them because they come out of that bubble and they're just not prepared for, to be challenged at all. And I mean, look at Obama's 2012 debate, his first debate with Mitt Romney. So if you're grading on that curve, I think, I think Trump did really well. I, I was a little disappointed or frustrated, and, and a lot of uh, our callers this morning who are Trump supporters are, are a bit frustrated. Not everybody, but a lot are. Because there were moments where, and, and again, you can modulate uh, throughout the debate, so I have no problem with him being disruptive or even interrupting, but uh, doing so in a way that's productive. And I think there were many times where it was unproductive. And, and, and right at the beginning of the debate, on the matter of the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, he was very good. He was room temperature. He addressed the matter uh, on the substance with the correct response. He also invoked Ruth Bader Ginsburg's words to uh, really uh, turn the, 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 the shiv and um, and suggested what every common sense person knows, which is, look, if Democrats were in the same position, they would do exactly what I'm doing and what Mitch McConnell is doing, just as they would have done if they had the Senate in 2016 with Merrick Garland. But unfortunately, they didn't have the Senate. The difference between a divided Senate and White House versus a White House and Senate of the same party. And, I, and I, it's easy to take away the top line from that and come across, OK, that makes perfect sense. And that's that's reasonable. And I just think we could have seen more of that from Trump, because that's also Trump. Uh, it's not just the. Uh, the, the, the grumpy old men episodes, it's it, that, that also is Trump. And we just didn't see enough of that where he could have really capitalized on opportunities that Biden presented because he is trying to remember the answers rather than react. And even the one you point out where he called Antifa an idea, not an actual thing. Uh, you know, I mean, Trump said, don't tell Andy, know that the journalist who was almost beaten to death by Antifa in Portland. Don't tell Project Veritas that that has undercover video of Antifa and their meetings and their plannings and their financing. I mean, this is how out of touch Joe Biden is. This is why you can't believe him when you say he's serious about law and order, because he doesn't even know that Antifa is a domestic terrorist organization that is responsible for violence across this country. I mean, that would have been a real moment. Instead, we're left for, with for people like you to to remind people that that was said and how ridiculous that statement was by Biden. 
Yeah, I'm not arguing that Trump had a good night. I'm not arguing that he capitalized and, and was but but if you look at the what is this going to do to voters? What are voters seeing? They Trump's just being Trump and that's him. And he's just he's he, he's sharp sometimes. He was really sharp on like you said Barrett, he was really sharp on voter fraud, yeah. on mail-in voting. I think that was a very very good moment for him. He was good on taxes. Uh, Biden was terrible. I love the way he hammered Biden over Hunter Biden. Um, that was crucial. That's out there now. And I think he's going to keep doing it. But but no one looked at that and said, well, wait a minute, this guy isn't who I think he is. I, I think people looked at Biden and they said, wow, he's old. He's going to raise my taxes. He's very close to feeble. And he just told the president of the United States to shut up. I've never seen anyone tell the president of the United States to shut up. Mm -hmm. And I yeah, think that's, that's a bad moment. That's my that's my key takeaway on style. Trump was obnoxious and annoying, but he was Trump. <laughs> Biden was pulled out like a vampire in the sun. And we saw him. I mean, he, he just looked terrible. He's so pale. His hair is so white. He, you know, he can barely hold. You could just tell he's barely holding on. And I think that hurt him. And I think repudiating the new Green Deal, the Green New Deal. I think that's going to hurt him with the left, with the Bernie people he's so desperate to hold on to. Not to mention the fact he was lying. He says right on his website, he says he supports the Green New Deal. So those, that's that's what I look at a debate for. What are voters going to take away from it? And I don't think anyone changed their mind about Trump, but I think a lot of people are going to get concerned about, about Biden. Well, what, no, what, and he needs them. Well, so so then what advice, and I mean, not that uh, Trump will do any prep the next time around, uh, but but um, what, what are your takeaways, not not just for the October 15th debate between Trump and Biden, but also next week's debate between Pence and Harris? You know, where do Republicans in this ticket need to sharpen their messaging on what topic do you think it's critically important for me? I still think the messaging on covid is just a mess. Uh, and that's such a huge issue. I think they need to be on offense, number one. But I think there needs to be much more in the way of specifics and deconstructing the bromides that you hear from Biden and Harris on the topic. You know, first we fix the covid, then we fix the economy. What, what does that even mean? And then go from there. Yeah. Uh I, well, just to go back to something you said, I do think Trump was prepared. I think he was very prepared. And and this was his game plan. It was to disrupt Biden, was to expose Biden mm. to, if you want to put it this way, bring Biden down to his level. And that's what he did. Uh, uh, and to make sure, I mean, Biden, what is Biden's plan for the future? We don't have a plan. What is his plan? It, you know, I would love for Trump to be a little more articulate. I think the main thing that he needs to do in these upcoming debates and that Pence needs to do. They need to talk about what their plans are for the next four years. That is crucial. You know, when Bill Clinton ran for reelection, it was a bridge to the 21st century. And when George W. Bush ran for reelection, it was stay the course in the war on terror. And I'd like Trump to be able to articulate better what what his vision is. And I know he says things like more judges and, and the wall. Um, rebuild the but economy. He's rebuild the economy, stuff like that. But I, I think he needs to uh, just articulate better what the next four years are going to look like. And not just hammer away at Joe Biden um, like he did. But I do. I think I, I do. I, I think he won the debate. I think he won it by a pretty wide margin. And if you just look at how people are going to think about it two days from now, what the impression is going to be left with them. I think he did. A, I think he did a pretty good job. Hmm. Far from perfect, but he won. But it was a dirty win. All right. Uh, like the 83 White Sox winning ugly, says John Nolte. All right, John, editor winning large ugly. Breitbart .com. John, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft 
and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Talked about it last hour with John Gabriel. Talked about it last night with uh, you all. This question that Chris Wallace asked about uh, Trump's executive order prohibiting racial, quote-unquote, sensitivity training in the federal government. And why would he do that? You know, what's wrong with racial sensitivity? Nothing wrong with it. It's just not what that executive order pertains to. It pertains to critical race theory, which is a race hustle, teaching hate, teaching division based on race. And uh, perhaps to illustrate this, I suggested Trump should have been more aggressive in attacking the premise of Wallace's question in, in addition to explaining exactly what critical race theory does and the implications of the sort of indoctrination that is otherwise being supported by federal tax dollars that he doesn't want supported by tax dollars. If only so many school districts and Fortune 500 CEOs were similarly situated. He could also tell this story, a story that... Uh, is told at Outkick.com by uh, Jason King. The Kurt Beathard story. Kurt Beathard's a football coach. Name Beathard ring a bell? Yeah, Bobby Beathard. Hall of, uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer, legendary Washington Redskins. Oh, I'm sorry, football team. General manager. Kurt Beathard's his kid. And by the way, have you been watching Pro Football? Because I haven't. I'm done with it. Done with my season tickets. Uh, a diehard Sox fan. I know they won game one yesterday against the A's and uh, there's uh, this is a great young team to watch. I, I just I can't get interested. I'm not going to be lectured on race relations or American history by largely a bunch of know-nothing children who are good at one thing and ignorant on many other things. And that would extend to the front offices of NFL teams. That would extend to Roger Goodell and his office as well. If... Uh, these athletes want to be political then um, and, and are going to force a choice upon me and they're going to throw in with the Marxists in this country, the cultural Marxists, then uh, I'm not going to participate. Basically saying go pound sand to me, but also, you know, keep buying your season tickets. I don't think so. So back to the story of Kurt Beathard. Kurt Beathard was offensive coordinator at Illinois State University. So small college football, but it's um, still college football. He uh, patterned his coaching philosophy after his father's protege, Joe Gibbs, three-time Super Bowl champ, Skins. And uh, you, if you remember Joe Gibbs, if you're old enough, you remember that he was um, an outspoken Christian. Not in your face, but outspoken, thoughtful in his expression of his faith in Christ when the time was warranted. Uh, very much like uh, Davo Sweeney is today, the Clemson football coach. Earlier this month, Illinois State reassigned Kurt Beathard for posting a sign on his office door. What did the sign say, Dan? So glad you asked. The sign said, all lives matter to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh-oh. Two problems there, right? All lives matter. Don't want anything that's indicative of our common humanity. And then to invoke our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at a public university. Oh, boy. Uh, King contacted Beathard to get the backstory to uh, what occurred at Illinois State, uh, leading to Beathard being separated from his position. 
there was uh, some initial news reporting that suggested Beathard had stepped down, that he took the stairs rather than uh, rather than the window. Uh, he stressed, however, Beathard did. He didn't quit. I did not quit that job, he said. Here's what went down. In mid-August, Beathard arrived at his office one morning, discovered a Black Lives Matter sign taped on his door. He removed the sign. He looked into Black Lives Matter. He found out the same thing that Jason Whitlock found out, the same thing, sports writer at Outkick.com, the same thing that I've talked about from the outset of Black Lives Matter, the same thing that anybody who has looked into it, even in the most cursory way, will find out because the Black Lives Matter co-founders, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, they're not exactly subtle about who they are, what they believe, and what they're trying to do. They are trained Marxist activists who are interested in overthrowing the federal government, having the proletariat revolution visited upon America. And trying to understand his players' affinity for BLM, he uh, you know, found the same things that we've talked about on this show. BLM's call to disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure. He understands Marx's political thought is hostile to religions. You know, Karl Marx's famous incantation that religion is the opiate of the masses. Bethard said, I thought, no, I can't have this on my door. So I took it off and put it behind the chair in my office. I was praying about it. And I thought all lives matter here. And there's no other organization other than Jesus Christ to sponsor that. He uh, told uh, this Outkick.com writer, Bethard did, that he's relied on his faith more so than ever in the past year. This summer, he, his wife, Karen, lost a five-year battle with cancer. Bethard's you know, still a relatively young man. He's 57 years old. Bethard's 22-year-old nephew, Clayton, was stabbed and killed in December of last year outside a bar in Nashville. Bethard said, I truly believe that all lives matter. It's right there in the Bible. God doesn't discriminate. He doesn't say, oh, I kind of like some of these people, but I really, really like these other people. <laughs> right? <sighs> I keep hearing about the abortion rates and the gun killings. I think about the stuff that I got angry about when my nephew was tragically murdered. His life mattered. My wife's life mattered, too. She lived with cancer for five years. She mattered to me. It's about every life. The all lives matter to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That sign hung on his door for two weeks before he was politely asked by one of his superiors to remove it. Bethard said they didn't demand it. They just said as a favor, could you please take that off your door? I didn't take it off right away. I sat there and prayed about it and said, God knows where my heart is. That's all that matters. If it will help to take it off, I'll take it off. Well, unbeknownst to him, a few days before taking that sign down, someone had taken a picture of the sign on his door. It circulated among the Illinois State Redbirds football team. Some players were offended. Yeah, of course they were. Uh, and uh, Beathard admits that there was some tension during the off season said the coaching staff had been on alert throughout the summer. that might have to deal with issues stemming from the unrest caused by the death of George Floyd, in Minneapolis, but he had no idea the escalating tension would eventually engulf him. Right. Jason King on September 2nd. It did. That's when the school informed him. He no longer had a position on the Redbird staff. Hmm. All lives matter to our Lord and savior. Something Joe Gibbs, Tom Landry, Tony Dungy, any Christian would say nonchalantly cost Kurt Beathard his job. BLM activists have clearly turned a basic Christian belief into an affront to black people. This is where we are, as Jason King writes, racial politics and anti-American sentiment have replaced Christianity and patriotism. Is that a happy development? Chris Wallace, Joe Biden, supporters of the race hustle, identitarian racial politics, new racial order, race is the basis for political power. This is the 
country you want to live in. Racial politics, anti-American sentiment, replacing Christianity and patriotism. And you think that's going to be a better, stronger, more unified country, a fairer country, do you think? Beathard doesn't care. I don't like that you can't have a different opinion than someone else, but I wouldn't change what I did. I'm not going to deny Jesus. If you deny Jesus, he'll deny you. That's written in the Bible multiple times. I'm not going to back down on that one. Well, good for Kurt Beathard and so bad for Illinois State and so bad for America. You may want to consider whether you're going to deny these uh, politicians, whether they're actually elected officials or they're uh, trained Marxists heading up uh, corporate-funded non-profit quote-unquote organization you want to deny them or you want to deny christ and where do you think the two roads respectively lead this is dan Prof. you're listening to the dan Proft show on the salem radio network Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what happens when intelligence and law enforcement agencies and government fail, uh, as uh, arguably they have uh, in so many respects on so many fronts over the last three years, perhaps come to light in a way never before, particularly with what I think is properly described as a failed coup attempt on the President of the United States by CIA, by FBI. What about uh, the personal enrichment of politicians leveraging their positions of power for fame, well, for for fame, sure, but for fortune, and uh, perhaps ill-gotten gains, illegally trading on their position to enrich themselves, and uh, intelligence agencies, law enforcement agencies being compromised by politics. Well, um, perhaps some of the answers to who intercedes, who fills the vacuum, can be found in a new book, by Tyler Maroney called The Modern Detective, How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. In his book, among other roles, he suggests corporate uh, intelligence uh, professionals are uh, performing is to uncover fraud and corruption, help keep government officials honest, save companies billions of dollars in stolen funds as well. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Tyler Maroney, co-founder of the private investigations firm Quest Research and Investigations. And again, the book, The Modern Detective, How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. Tyler, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Morning. Um, you know, I think when I think of, uh, of, of major uh, corruption scandals just globally in the last few years that have uh, – uh, really rocked a number of, of nations uh, and, and actually uh, track back to fold in some American interest, too. I think of the one MDB scandal in Malaysia, uh, half a billion dollars of, of embezzled funds, taxpayer funds that were used to finance uh, the lifestyles of uh, the rich and famous, particularly this guy named Joe Lowe, who ended up being uh, a, uh, a producer of some Hollywood movies, including a DiCaprio film. Uh, uh, and, um, I also think of the Panama papers and this, uh, law firm that was, uh, the preferred law firm of many moneyed interests who were trying to use offshore, uh, tax havens to shield their assets from taxation. That became, that was all, that was, that was turned into movie, not produced by Joe Lowe, but uh, uh, scandals like that, 
is that some of what you're talking about when you reference in your book uh, you uh, how corporate per- investigative professionals help to keep governments accountable and uh, root out fraud and corruption? Well, first, I, would, I think I'd like to see that film, the, the Joe Lowe produced film about the Panama Papers. That would be a good one. Those are both great examples. I mean, in the, in the Joe Lowe case, you have a, you know, an international bank, Goldman Sachs, some of his employees involved in that. And then you have the prime minister uh, and, and all these other personalities. There's a wonderful book about the Joe Lowe case. It starts off um, with a giant party in Las Vegas near the airport hosted by Leonardo DiCaprio. It's just good reading in and of itself. And then the Panama Papers, of course. Um, and so I, my, the argument I make in the book is that um, there is a role that private detectives play that goes beyond the stereotype of the, you know, the kind of the, the private eye with the, the long lens looking in the shadows, um, helping whether it's someone who'd been arrested for a, a DWI or a giant corporation who is facing some kind of uh, massive fraud, um, helping that those clients again, whether the individual, the indigent individual, or the global corporation. Um, the Panama Papers are a great example of of sometimes it's called wrongdoing and sometimes it's not being revealed. And that was through a leak. There was someone internal who gave those documents to journalists. Uh, that, that law firm was called Monsac Fonseca, a Panamanian law firm. Um, and although it certainly revealed um, that government officials, um, some American but largely foreign, as well as large corporations, were using Monsanto Fonseca to hide uh, assets, uh, engage in, in some cases, criminal behavior, but in other cases, avoid or evade taxes. Um, many times uh, what was revealed was simply that people were doing what they were legally allowed to do. Um, but they were doing it in the shadows. And I think that's the role that I try to highlight in my book about how people who do what I do and then others in adjacent industries are are good at finding information that, that other people don't want us to find. Uh, when we come back with uh, Tyler Maroney, I want to talk more about this other aspects of the, the corporate intelligence professional, the private investigator, including in this digital age, uh, advice on protecting digital data and safety, as well as reputation management. Disinformation is not just for political candidates anymore. Tyler Maroney, co-founder of the private investigations firm Quest Research and Investigations, the book, The Modern Detective. We'll be right back. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Tyler Maroney, co-founder of private investigations firm Quest Research and Investigation, author of the just-released book, The Modern Detective, A Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. We were talking about uh, corporate-level intelligence professionals, private detectives, uh, and the matter of rooting out uh, fraud and corruption, including within government particularly when there's not accountability mechanisms that are working properly within government. Uh, but I wanted to get to another topic that uh, you cover in your book, Tyler, and that's uh, about the disinformation, so much discussion of fake news, so much discussion of, of reputation management. If you're, you're not a candidate for office, but just things that are said about you that are malicious and harmful to you personally or professionally that you uh, that are hard to source online. 
and how uh, corporate intelligence professionals play a role in in, uh, in in combating disinformation campaigns and doing reputation management for individuals or companies. Yeah, so I think that the, the, the term fake news is a fascinating one because it's, it's one that we have all been using um, probably too much in the last few years. Um, and it's wielded in different ways. Um, you know, in many cases, politicians will claim that something is fake news because it is not what they like to hear. Uh, and in other cases, fake news is quite literally news that is not real, which is not supported by any facts. Um, but you mentioned disinformation, which is, I think, a, a really critical thing for us all, especially anyone who uses social media to be aware of, because um, there is misinformation, which is information that is um, factually inaccurate. Excuse me, that's a disinformation. And misinformation is information that's spread around, that's amplified around uh, the Internet or elsewhere. Um, and in, in one case, the information is spread intentionally by bad actors. And in the other case, it's amplified by those who don't quite know whether or not the information is real or not. But then it gets traction and it gets picked up um, by more mainstream media outlets. And I think it's just something for all of us, regardless of our uh, political ideologies, to be aware of uh, with the source of our news and, and whether it's real. And, and so the corporate uh, investigator these days has to be tech savvy or at least has to have uh, a tech, tech savvy personnel uh, among their uh, their strategic allies or their collegial group, because you have to track down people who are operating in the shadows of the Internet, right? That's exactly right. I mean, some examples are um, there are lots of articles that are posted on the Internet by people who quite literally don't exist. They are bots or they are, um, you know, their names are, are very generic and their and their ID photos are clip art. Um, and that kind of in and of itself suggests that the news that you're reading might be inaccurate. And I think that's exactly right. That one, There's a few stories I tell in which um, th this is what is uncovered by, by private detectives. But we're not the only ones who are doing this. I mean, there are news organizations who are working on this. There are NGOs. Uh, there are people sitting at home who are excellent amateur detectives who are able to find out this work. So I would encourage everyone to just be aware of this information and do everything you can to to, to come up with ways to uncover that. And I'd be happy to talk about some of those tactics. But. Yeah, especially, too, I mean, even fold in, you know, we're the digital era. We're now in the digital era of digital currency and, uh, and, and, and you know, currencies like Bitcoin and uh, how mm -hmm. ubiquitous they may become if, if any of them ever gets traction as an actual transactional currency. Um, now you really have even more anonymity. It's even more difficult to track. It's and there's concerns about that being used as a currency for traffickers and so forth. And I, I wonder how that all folds in with, uh, uh, you know, representing corporations who need to abide by the laws and be concerned about people they're interacting with doing the same. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, one of the big issues that many large corporations fight against is regulation, right? Which is the government oversight which I would argue, if done properly, we need more of because um, regulation doesn't mean that they are prevented from being profitable or from growing. But Bitcoin and other digital currencies um, uh, are an example of a relatively new technology that exists outside of any regulation at all. So people who are using Bitcoin cannot be told um, by any uh, governmental authority necessarily um, what to do and, and how to do it. Now, that's slightly changing over the years. There are people who are, have bought Bitcoin and engaged in securities fraud that are being um, sought after by regulators. But um, I think it, it, what that teaches me, for instance, is that people who spend a disordinate amount of their time hiding their identities um, online and engaging in transactions outside of the normal uh, currency trading platforms are 
almost by definition, trying to do something that they don't want to be revealed, which might suggest that they're involved in some kind of wrongdoing. So I think we all have to be careful what platforms we use um, and what kind of information we not only consume, but what kind of information we put online about ourselves. Well, uh, develop that a bit more because I, I did want to get back to what you were suggesting, some some uh, rules of the road for protecting digital data and, sa- and, and, and digital safety. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, Dan. Some of the most obvious are the least used, um, and I'll just give a few quick examples. Uh, you know how when you are asked from some software providers or databases when you're signing up for something to give some answers to security questions, such as, you know, what is your father's middle name or what was the name of your first pet? My recommendation is to not give the real answer, to lie on those, because that information is often discoverable by others. So if you grew up on Main Street, for example, and you answer that question accurately, if someone is trying to get into your email system and they know because they found it on the internet on your Facebook account, which is public, if they know what the name of your first pet is, they can simply guess. So I would say throw a curveball into those security questions. The second one is um, use what's called two-factor authentication. So when you've got an email account, let's call it with Gmail or with Yahoo, make sure that you have it set up so that when you log in, a code is sent to your phone that you have to enter. And what this does is it verifies that you are, in fact, you and not somebody else who is trying to get access to your most sensitive information. Yeah, no, I, I actually, uh, banks are more and more using that, at least uh, the banks that I use that have, you know, where I try to access my account online. The other the interesting thing about the, those uh, security questions, though, too, it's, uh, you're right, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but then it's almost like you have to create, like, a whole new fictional you and, and stuff that you're supposed to remember for the purposes of logging in versus stuff you're supposed to remember because that's the life you led. It's, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a good security protocol, but it just becomes, uh, I don't know, a bit laborious. I have enough time remembering the uh, code to open my phone. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, there are some recommendations for that. There are what is called password managers that you can use um, that essentially save, one is called Dashlane, that save and sometimes even generate uh, passwords for you um, so that um, you, and it, you, it, they are changed often as well so that you don't have the same password year after year after year. Um, and this is one way to short circuit that. But I agree, it's overwhelming um, what we're facing with technologically these days. He is Tyler Maroney, co founder of the private investigations firm Quest Research and Investigations, author of the just released book, The Modern Detective How Corporate Intelligence is Reshaping the World. Tyler, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Closing out uh, today's installment. Take a deep breath after the last 24 hours of uh, debate and debate postmortem. But I want to go back to this uh, story I told uh, earlier in the hour about Kurt Bethard from Illinois State University, uh, brought to us by Outkick.com's Jason King. Uh, wonderful column. Uh, another column from Jason. Uh, another good column. This one from Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal about Amy Coney Barrett, since she was the subject of. The uh, opening portion of last night's debate, uh, Jason Riley writes about the left's unhealthy interest in Amy Coney Barrett's adopted kids. Remember, 
we were talking about with the question Trump was asked about uh, quote unquote racial sensitivity training with the Kurt Bethard story that I recounted earlier in the hour and uh, thinking about Amy Coney Barrett and the criticism she and her husband have received. She mainly her husband by extension for adopting two children from Haiti. And when did they adopt them in the aftermath of the 2020 earthquake earthquake in Haiti that claimed 250,000 people and displaced 1.5 million survivors. Think of those numbers. The Barrett family in the aftermath of the earthquake adopted a toddler named John Peter from a Haitian orphanage. But what kind of orphanage was it, says the left operatives? Where are their papers? Was that all on the up and up? Amy Coney Barrett and her husband Jesse strike me like they could be human traffickers. Uh, It turns out a few years ago, uh, they had... uh, uh, excuse me, last year uh, Notre Dame, at the Notre Dame Club of Washington, uh, Judge Barrett, then on the Seventh Circuit, discussed her adopted children. Uh, John Peter, the second adopted kid, right, uh, they adopted several years earlier before the earthquake an orphan girl named Vivian. But was she really orphaned or did they steal her? Talking about the adoptions, Judge Barrett said, we knew we wanted to adopt internationally. The wait for domestic adoption was just very, very long, and there were so many children in need. Right, a constant lament of, the adoption system in America. Vivian, their, um, the daughter they adopted, first adoption, is amazing. She was 14 months old when she came home, and she couldn't make any sounds at that point, nor could she pull herself up to a standing position. She was wearing a size zero to three-month clothing because she was so malnourished. Her husband and her were told at the time Vivian may never speak. She'd been so sick that she hadn't had a lot of practice making sounds, and she hadn't spoken a lot. Well, fast forward, uh, a decade and all that's changed. Vivian is credit is incredibly athletic now. And trust me, the speech has not been a problem. She joked. I looked at the, her the other day at the gym and just thinking what a miracle it is, and how strong she's become. Jason Riley writing in response, most reasonable people would agree that the bear's decision to adopt one sickly orphan and then another one following the worst natural disaster in Haiti's history isn't merely admirable, but heroic. Yet she's been attacked by luminaries of the political left who are outraged that the adoptions were transracial. Uh, It would be a mistake to laugh this off as knee-jerk anti-Trumpism. The sort of racial hype and paranoia coming from the progressive left predates the current administration and will continue whether or not Mr. Trump is reelected next month. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.